Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Welcome to the Deceptively Fast podcast. I am really excited about this one today because I'm going to get to speak to an author of a book I just read. I'm at his home in League City, just 12 minutes from my house. I didn't even realize he lived this close to me. But since I was a little kid, uh, I've kind of had uh, I, I had an obsession with going to space and being a pilot when I was a little kid. And somewhere the way, along the way, I lost it. I read Clayton Anderson's book, Ordinary Spaceman, and it kind of rekindled a whole lot of stuff. So I reached out to Clayton Anderson, who has a new book coming out. It's a question of space and ordinary astronauts answers to sometimes extraordinary questions. Uh, This is a man who, as he was working for NASA, applied 15 times to be an astronaut. Now, that's one time per year. So this was 15 times over 15 years he applied to be an astronaut before he finally became an astronaut astronaut and spent 167 days in space at the International Space Station. Clayton, thank you for having me. Thank you, Seth. It's an honor to be here with you. No, uh, this is one of my favorite parts of living in Houston and (laughs) living where I do now is that I I I get to drive past the space shuttle. Like routinely, sweet, and, and I get to drive past the Saturn rocket routinely, <laughs> and I get excited every single time I do it. Um, you you spent 167 days in space, 166 and a half. Well, uh, let's round up. Astronauts like to round up. Okay, bigger numbers. Yeah, and uh, it was you and a bunch of Russians and Americans <laughs> over that time. Yes, I, I kind of gear this podcast so far. It's worked out to that I'm gearing it towards an intellectual meathead variety, and I feel like you're a little bit of an intellectual meathead. Oh, absolutely. I use small words, I speak slowly. <laughs> and, but you started off as an engineer at NASA, mm-hmm. and in the course of 15 years, you applied 15 times. Um, the one thing that was really impressive to me when I read Ordinary Spaceman was, and this is something that actually reminds me of J.J. Watt, was that you seem from a very young age to not be bashful at all. <laughs> about telling anybody and everybody that you wanted to be an astronaut. And I, I think a lot of people lack that. I, I think a lot of people maybe are afraid to be made fun of or are, are afraid to put it out there like that. Did, any, did your parents instill that in you, or is that just that you were that focused on it? Uh, my folks, my mother in particular, was really good about dreams, and she was really good about encourage, encouraging you to go wherever you want. Because one of the nice stories I talk about her, I wanted to go to UCLA and play basketball out of high school for John Wooden. <clears throat> and my dad comes in the room, you know, and I'm talking to my mom about sending him my ACT scores and all that. And uh, dad says, uh, UCLA, that's in California, isn't it? Uh, yeah, dad. Uh, California is kind of expensive, isn't it? Uh, yeah, dad. Well, uh, maybe uh, maybe you shouldn't go to UCLA then. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, then he leaves the room. Like, back then, that's the way some dads were, right? And my mom leans over, and she goes, if you want to go to UCLA, we'll find a way. Mm-hmm. We will find a way. And that that's all I needed, right? And that's what kids today need, I think, is to realize that they're just like me. You know, if, if somebody said, J.J. Watt is just like me, that's true statement to a certain level, right? And every kid should have that feeling, and they should understand that. Don't ever tell yourself no. Let if it's your JJ Watt, let the coach at Wisconsin or or the or Bill O'Brien at the Texans tell you no, JJ, you can't play quarterback, right? But don't tell yourself you can't play quarterback. And 
And your mom was kind of the person that took the brakes off of you. They took away that, well, maybe I shouldn't think about doing this. Maybe I can't do this. And she did. And, and the neat thing is dad didn't say much, but dad let my mom and paid for my mom to get her master's degree in speech pathology while my dad slaved away at a piddly job in Nebraska. Because even back then, his actions spoke louder than his words because at that time, a lot of husbands would not have allowed their wife to succeed them educationally and to succeed them in breadwinning capability and all that. So I just watched, and, and the way he handled her and let her do that showed me a lot about what you can do. And then you go off to Hastings College, mm-hmm. which is not a, a huge college. It's um, not? No, um, <laughs> which, which you know. Um, but, uh, but again... And you talk about this in your book. You were very forthcoming and open about you wanting to be an astronaut. And, and it turns a sequence of events which might otherwise seem like chance or fate. It makes a whole lot of sense when you look at the broader context because one of your professors on an alumni shooting, uh, alumni hunting trip, correct? Well, yep. Was, ended up talking to uh, somebody who worked at NASA. Right. So... The guy that was a Hastings College graduate in 1961 worked at Johnson Space Center in Building 30, actually. And he came up every fall to hunt pheasants in Nebraska. And so he shows up to hunt, and somehow he gets paired with uh, one of the career guidance counselors at Hastings College. And they're stomping through the woods, and they're talking about what they do. And he says, I work at NASA. Oh, we have a kid here at NASA uh, that loves NASA. And, oh, he does? Well, uh, does he know we have an internship program? Oh, no, I don't think so. And, well, uh, would he like to know about you? Well, yeah, I'm thinking he would. Well, I can send him the phone. Would you please? And so all that kind of comes together, and then I make the application. Now, I was an athlete in college. I was a deep, pretty good student. I was in student government. You know, I did a lot of things, which was nice that a small school like Hastings could afford me to do that. And that helped my resume such that I got a phone call about being interviewed to get that job. And getting a summer internship and putting your foot through the door is a big step along the way. Mm-hmm. And so you end up at NASA. You do a great job at your internship. You end up at NASA. And, and this is where the part, it just is mind-blowing to me, I suppose, is that you applied over the course of 15 years. And, <laughs> and you kept at it methodically. Um, it, it, was anybody else like that at the time? Were there, were there other engineers or scientists that were... Also, like they were working at NASA and also applying to be astronauts over and over again? I'm sure there were. Um, at that point in my career, I hadn't really done much. And so um, it's easy to apply. It's hard to get selected. So filling out the paperwork and, and doing all that triviality and mailing it off is not a big deal. But I hadn't built a resume yet that allowed me to compare. But I'm sure there were other people just like me at various venues there at JSC or Kennedy Space Center around the country that were trying to become astronauts as well. Um, but I didn't want to follow any formula, right? I just yeah. wanted to do the best job I could, apply, uh, try to better myself through the years and see how that would get me. So you finally are accepted into the program. And there's a few questions I want to ask you along the way. I, I showed you, I've got like seven pages of notes from your book. That um, was, you know, with voice to text, it's easier than it, right. than it used to be. It's I not, understand. It's, I wasn't necessarily slaving over it. <laughs> um, but the, the, the space station, there are a lot of questions about that. The, the part that I never realized or would have thought of is that when you spend five months in space and you get back to Earth, 
uh, all of a sudden, it's kind of a shock to your system, feeling gravity for the first time. And the most meatheadish question I could think to ask you about that is, how long did it take you to get your bench back up to what it was before, after you landed? Three weeks. Three weeks, that's it. Yeah. So you go from feeling no gravity at all to then you land, you're barely able to lift your arm, right? Mm-hmm. And then what's that like over three weeks? Well, I would imagine uh, it's very similar to some of the rehab that JJ and Deshaun Watson and those guys go through um, after an injury because I came home, um, the very first day I was home, I didn't do anything, but the next morning I was riding the bike for 15 minutes and then, and it was on a weekend. So then on Monday morning, I had Sunday off. Monday morning I came in and for three weeks I did two and a half hours of rehab every morning. And I did it religiously. Haven't been an athlete, I knew what was required, right? right? Some people, when they get injured or whatever and they're not, been in athletics they when it starts to hurt they stop and they go i can't do this it hurts well that's part of what you have to push through Mm so um i worked hard enough that in three and a half weeks the doctors cleared me physically and typically it takes six to eight weeks um and i could bench press what i could before i left i could run two miles in the same time and that whole time you're on the space station you're working out a Mm -hmm. lot right two and a half hours a day two and a half hours a day Mm -hmm. of mostly cardio um we do uh, resistance training. Um, I'm, tr- I'm thinking every day. Yeah. It's hard to remember anymore. But, but we did uh, aerobics every day too, but we alternated the bicycle with the treadmill with the bicycle with the treadmill. Okay. So you had more aerobic forms of activity than you did um, weightlifting. Uh, but now they have a really nice resistance machine that allows them to... St- some they're saying that they come back stronger, some of them, than when they left. Oh, no kidding. So it simulates all the different things that you would do. Right. Like Bench, resistance squats, all that direction. stuff. And it uses pistons, hydraulic pistons, to make the resistance. Whereas I had a, a pulley cable system where, you know, the pulleys would wrap around a cylinder, you know, yeah. and I'd pull against that. And then you could tighten the cylinder down, and so it would make it harder. But... um I maxed out that on um, squats in the first week. Oh, so no kidding. I had to do... If I was supposed to do 50 two-legged squats, I had to do 100 with each leg. You know, was, uh, so the, and then boredom sets in over uh, it because you don't have that much variety. Well, I watched TV yeah. while I did. I watched Hogan's Heroes, um, Gilligan's Island, and Get Smart uh-huh. episodes that they had sent to me when I worked out. And I also watched the news, the nightly news. Oh, okay. Well, that can be stress-inducing, though. Yeah, I, for me, it was like, ah, oh, well, I got something in front of me. You know, I could watch a movie, too. When I ran, I watched movies like Harry Potter. I'd never heard of Harry Potter, right? Oh, yeah. And we had the first, second, third, and fourth movie. So I started watching those when I ran. And then when I bicycled, I watched my TV programs like, uh, uh, what, what's it called? SVU and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever was big back then. And then you, well, how long is your work day? Um, typically... Your day is uh, eight and a half hours of sleep, so 15 and a half hours of other stuff. Of that 15 and a half hours of other stuff, we had a six-hour work window, a block of six hours that we had to work on stuff. Um, But eating, exercising, cleaning up, mealtime, and then administration stuff, like looking at emails and that, all that's part of that um, 15 and a half hours. Oh, okay. So the administrative stuff... Your workday is longer than that six-and-a-half-hour window. The six-and-a-half-hour right. window is like the actual physical tasks. Yeah. Okay. Of You know, today, Clay, you're going to clean the toilet, and that takes 30 minutes, and then you're going to go do this, and that takes an hour and a half. And then yeah. You're gonna, you know, so they could only schedule us for six hours of that sort of stuff. Um, 
and usually I got done faster, so I had extra time. Some days you'd go a little long. You might work extra just because it was a spacewalk, getting ready for a spacewalk or something. Um, but I never found it uh, debilitating or crazy, right? It, usually if I had a tough day one day and worked extra, I had a couple of days where I could get stuff done and relax a little bit. Well, that's a huge part of it, isn't it? And that's what... I guess over time you streamline that within NASA is figuring out just how much psychological stress there is and how much guys can handle. <laughs> well, you know, in my time... Uh, you're, you're giving a look at that, that speaks of bureaucracy. Yeah, you, fig- you figure it out yourself, right? Okay. When I, before I left, the psych, the psych treatment I got was a 30-minute briefing where the guy basically said, hey, you're on your own, you know, yeah, deal with it. Uh-huh. And so you get into space and then you learn... Uh, or at least I did with my two Russian crewmates, I was able to figure out um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not when I was being really stressed and when I was carrying my stress and anger back to the ground, right? Because I spoke out, right? If I was frustrated or I was mad or I thought something was stupid, I told them. Uh, and that doesn't go over well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that part was really interesting to me because you started off as an engineer, mm-hmm. and then you become an astronaut. And in a lot of ways, it seems, it seems, tell me if I'm wrong here, it seems like in some ways ground control wants the astronauts to be extremely intelligent monkeys. <laughs> right? Like they want you to just take orders and do right. what they say. Right. Where you've got that astronaut's, or excuse me, that engineer's mentality too, where you, where you want to tinker with things and fix things. And is yep. it, was it as simply a matter of like, oh, all of a sudden now we've got an engineer up there that's talking to us the way we talk to them? Good question. And, and I have to give you my perspective, right? Because I've never really sat down with any of the people that supposedly didn't like the fact that I've talked back. Yeah. Um, and, my deal was I met with all these people before I flew, and I said, look, don't ever take anything I say personally. I'm trying to make the program better for the 10th guy that comes behind me, right? And I actually took crew reports, written crew reports, from the first 12 expeditions to the space station. And those all had the crew's um, top five complaints, I guess, if you will, or recommendations. And I read them every month. I took the whole thing out, and I read all of them every month. And I saw that some of them had never been addressed. And I was still dealing with stuff that those guys dealt with in the, in the days past, right? And I didn't want that. And so I stepped out of a box and I said, look, do you know that Expedition 4 wrote this in their crew summary briefing back in 2003 or whatever, and we're still jacking with this in an inappropriate way? Mm-hmm. Well, they don't want to hear that part. And to their credit, though, they're, they're hard-driven uh, hardworking folks and and uh, but they're not there. They're not in my house. Yeah. And if I go to your house and I tell you to move all the dishes from cabinet A over to cabinet D, and you say okay, and you move them all, and then two days later they say move those same dishes to cabinet F, and you go all right, and then you move them to F, and then two more days go by, and they say hey, would you move them back to A where they were originally, and you go. What are you guys thinking? <laughs> yeah. right. And that's the part I wanted to, to stop. I wanted that to go away. Because I was a referee in college, you know, basketball, right? right? And proper planning prevents poor performance. The five Ps, six Ps? Well, yeah, it's six Ps <laughs> if you had the, the extra bodily fluid in there, right? The, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the P poor execution. Exactly. Right? <laughs> There's a book. It's surprising to me, I guess, that that might happen at NASA just because there's a book I read for the life of me, I can't remember what it's called right now, but it's it's this former 
it's a former fighter pilot who kind of goes to businesses and he talks to them about using the way fighter pilots plan missions mm-hmm. and then also control for things afterwards. And there's the there's the planning portion, um, there's the execution por- portion, right. and then immediately afterwards in the, is the debrief. Right. And the debrief's the big part where, okay, right. these are the issues, how are we going to fix them next time before the planning? And it's really cool. The, the Giants actually used it, mm-hmm. um, and Eli Manning, like it, Eli Manning credits it with him becoming a leader. And then because of Eli, the Broncos started using it. So I guess it surprises me that NASA, who's full of pilots, doesn't necessarily have that same method or structure. Is, is part of it just that everything is so big? Yeah. it's. I mean, it's a, uh, a tough road to hoe in that when an astronaut comes back, uh, the group that's badgering them with the questions during debriefs is a large group. And they're only they only care about their little piece of the the big pie, and typically I found that no matter what the astronaut said, they didn't hear all of it. Mm. And you have to be willing to listen and hear all of it in order to impactfully change your process. And sometimes we get and I do too. We get in that mode where we only listen to what we're listening for, mm-hmm. and we don't hear the other pieces, right? And you take that away, and you think, "Oh man, they loved our system. They oh they they thought we were awesome." Well, you didn't hear the first part where <laughs> you know, and and that's that's part of that cultural bureaucracy and that cultural upbringing that that says um, we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to make sure everything is safe all the time. Um, but we have to constantly keep telling each other to listen to one another, right? Because mm-hmm. you can go back in the Challenger days and the Columbia days, and there was always somebody that said, hey, we probably shouldn't do this or we should do that, and we didn't listen. Right. And look where we ended up. It was uh, Flawless Execution was the name of the book, and the company is Afterburner. It's a really cool company. I should, I should direct you to somebody because they have speaking opportunities, and you're a very good speaker. Oh, thank um, you. You'd be great with this. They, they love incorporating different special ops people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, pilots and what have you. So we'll, we'll hook you guys up. Um, I haven't killed anyone. That, <laughs> um, so I guess the, the one part two of the book, that, and I, I was really impressed with how frank and open you were with about this, was that they said, they, they told you, look, okay, this, something's not working out with your interpersonal issues that you're having with crowd control. And you, you went back and you worked at it. You took seminars, you did all this, and ultimately... It just wasn't going to work out. Is now that you've had some time and you're removed from that a little bit, is there anything you think you could have done differently, or was it that Clayton Anderson is just at some point going to have to speak his mind about something? Uh, obviously, I could always do it differently, right? Yeah. I could have used a different tone of voice or different words from orbit uh, when I came back and they put me on double secret probation. Um, I went off and I tried to improve my lot in life and prove to them that w- that what they were saying wasn't really the real deal. Because if you talk to my first 15-year career at NASA, you'll find everybody that I worked with said I was a pretty damn good team player, I was a good leader, you know, all those things that they claimed that I wasn't simply because I spoke out. Well, at that point in my career, I figured, hey, I'd earned the opportunity to speak out. I'm flying in space right now, and I'm here. But it didn't work out that way. So... Obviously, I could go back and I could do it differently. Uh, I could play the game. I'm not a game player. Yeah. I hate that. And the fact that um, there's a game involved with all this that you have to keep your, you know, the, the phrase is keep your head down and keep coloring. And sometimes I 
looked up from my coloring book. Yeah. And when you look up from your coloring book and you see stuff, it's hard for me not to speak out. Well, and I would imagine too, because you were part of, um, I forget the term for it, when you're taking care of the families of the astronauts. Oh, uh, family escort. Family escort. You were a family escort uh, during the Columbia disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you saw up close and personal exactly Mm -hmm. what the... The real devastation that can occur, um, and is that I, you know the the one part I never thought about that until you described it was just how many people that affects on the ground, not just the families, but I mean for all of NASA, mm-hmm. that's devastating, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, and the fact that I was there with the families uh, at probably the worst moment in their lives, and it was right up there in my life too. Um, and I was part of the process, right? We had sat down and smart people had put together a process. This is what we will do in the event of a tragedy, right? Because Challenger had happened. Well, I went through that process and it was still broken. Mm-hmm. And so after it was over and after I talked to um, a number of the family members, right? Because they came to me and they unload, right? That's part of the deal. I went back to management and I said, hey, I would suggest that we do this, 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 and this because this is what the family said they needed at the time. And we still didn't change anything, right? So that goes back to the listening part. You have to be willing to listen to the people that are involved and then take their input and, and look at it seriously and see if you really can make it better. I would imagine you, you've got a pretty thick skin too. So maybe you're a referee. Yeah. So of yeah. course you've got to fix it. I did. I did a charity softball, or excuse me, a charity flag football game. <laughs> and luckily, I had to leave at the half. Uh, the, like we were encouraged. We were encouraging the kids because it was kids coaching to have fun right. with it and everything. Right. I about snapped. And this is a this is a charity powder puff flag football. And uh, you know, I, I threw one flag. And I even knowing that it was ridiculous that it was bothering me, I. I couldn't imagine what it must be like when you're getting it from actually angry and irate fans that that are taking it for real. And to them, it's life and death. Oh, yeah. You you just have to... Sometimes I was better at that than others, but... Are you still doing high school games? uh, No, this was my last year this past season, so I've hung up my referee whistle. Yeah. Your kids went to school here in League City. Your daughter's mm-hmm. still in school in, in high school in League right. City. She'll be a senior. Mm-hmm. I, I had a friend that I played with, Jeff Novak, who grew up in League City. And he said, he said that bring your father to school day or career day at school got really tense because there's so many astronauts that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that you felt like, oh, man, my dad's an accountant. Uh, I got to compete with Clayton Anderson and these guys. Yeah. Do you get, but you get a lot of the same questions all the time. And I know the mm-hmm. first one you get all the time is how do you guys go to the bathroom? I'll answer right. for our listeners. There's suction involved. Exactly. So there's that. I guess I, I would ask the question, what happens when you're doing those two and a half hours of workout with all your sweat? Does it just evaporate? No, it's well, it stays on your arm, right? Because gravity, when you're in the gym oh, at home, right, you're yeah. going to sweat and the drops will drop to the ground. Yeah. Or you th- but in space, they stay on your skin, which can be kind of unnerving a little bit. But then you just take a towel with you wherever you go and you constantly wipe okay. that all off. But then you have to hang that towel on the wall later because that sweat's going to be pulled out of that towel by the environmental control system so you can drink it later. Oh, okay. And, and so... Every little molecule of water... Is just constantly being recycled, and uh, that, and now that includes urine. So, oh really? Uh-huh, it oh, did. it didn't before. No, and when I was Which up there, which is a big waste of water. Uh, yeah, till now. 
I mean, it's still a big waste because even if you look at urine, when you break it down into the water you can drink and the other stuff, there's a lot of the other stuff, and you still we still haven't figured out a use for that, so yeah. it's, it's still trash. Do they figure out, are you pretty much operating on whatever caloric needs they've decided that you need yes. in a given day, and that's it for the entire time? Um, like, I mean, you're, are, is it pretty regimented? It's, regimented? It's not necessarily regimented in that... Um, we had a, an experiment we were participating in, the Americans did, where you had to document your food intake for every week, but it was kind of a wag. Sometimes you forget what you had on Monday if you were filling it out Friday, and it wasn't one of those things where you could scan your food and then eat it, scan it, eat it, scan it, eat it. That would be way better. Now, they may do that today, but we didn't do that. We had to figure out a way to remember what we had for lunch, breakfast, dinner throughout the days. Um, and then I'm sure they had a calorie count for me, but pfft, I didn't care what it was. Yeah. I just ate. Yeah. And uh, I lost 12 pounds both times. So 152 days in space, I lost 12 pounds. And 15 days in space, I lost 12 pounds. So that tells me that gravity, zero gravity, says Clay, when he gets to space, needs to lose 12 pounds. And your body just kind of adjusts and then for he, it. And he can sustain, you know, after that. Has your body been permanently altered in some ways? Your bone structure? <laughs> I sure as hell hope not. Yeah. But... I don't know yet, right? I've been really lucky. I, I didn't have, they're having eyesight issues, some of them, and I never had that. Um, my feet never, never bothered me when I came back. You know, I was running and lifting in three and a half weeks. Yeah. Um, Radiation for some people is an issue. That, I don't know that I'll know until somebody tells me I might have some form of cancer or whatever. And, yeah. and knock on wood again, we're hoping that doesn't happen for a long, long time. I was reading this morning about the induced hibernation that they're thinking about doing <laughs> for traveling to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they just they knock you out and you hibernate. Uh, mm-hmm. and the, how long is the trip to Mars? It'd be, be at least, based on today's technology for propulsion, it'd be at least six to nine months, depending on, you know, where Mars is when you leave the Earth and how close or far apart you are. Um, So let's just say nine for ease of calculation. So nine months to get there. And if they line up again so that you could come back in nine months, that's 18, a year and a half, right? And if you're going to go on a vacation for a year and a half, you're probably going to stay at that resort for a while. (laughs) So I would add in another six to nine months. Right. It's not like one of those things where you don't want to drive two days for a two-night vacation and then drive two days back. I used to tell people if dad, my dad, wanted to go from Miami to Anchorage, Alaska, right, in an RV that you could never get out of the entire time, when he gets to Anchorage, Alaska, he's going to say... Get out. Have some fun. <laughs> We're staying a while, you know. Well, you described the Soyuz, which is the Russian vehicle <laughs> they use. And, and you described your training while you were in Russia for that. Um, and then my daughter and I were watching this documentary the other night. And they're showing, like, the actual Soyuz as it's landing. Mm-hmm. You described it really well. But I hadn't quite pictured exactly how compressed and tight that is. I would be... I, I get in an MRI and I have to calm myself down. I'm doing breathing <laughs> exercises for a full half hour, you know. So I can't imagine what it was like being in that thing where it just looked. You're, you're first, you're packed inside this spacesuit, uh-huh. and then you're packed in next to two other people in this mm-hmm. tiny little capsule, and you're just completely helpless. Do you, are you a person that needs to talk yourself down from any panic at all, or is it just pretty much, oh, here we are? No, it's a Volkswagen Beetle with a moonroof, right, attached to a telephone booth is a Soyuz capsule. Yeah. So when you're in your spacesuit with two other adults and you're in the fetal position with your knees at the dashboard sitting in the front seat of that Volkswagen Beetle, um, you know, it's tight, but most of us have the fear 
trained out of us. Now, the anxiety part or the claustrophobia part, um, if you have any of that, you typically don't get too far in the astronaut oh, world. Yeah. But you are way too big. <laughs> that's my excuse. Oh, yeah. Oh, look, I, I tell my daughter that. I could have been an astronaut. but uh, He has know. the looks for it, <laughs> but, but he, he's just a little big in stature. So You know what? I'm glad you mentioned that. Just as far as the the appearance, I'm glad you mentioned that I'm good looking. It's very important that we get that that in in this podcast. No, uh, the PR side of NASA, because uh-huh. you go from and, and you bring this up, or you, at least you allude to it a couple times in the book about how important you think it is for astronauts to get out there and talk to kids. Um, and my, like my daughter, my daughter does not typically like going with me to work. I told her today that I was going to go talk to an astronaut, and she hopped right in the car. So she's giving she's giving Clayton a high five right now. Um, <laughs> One thing that sets you apart from, I'm guessing, a lot of astronauts and a lot of scientists in general is that you are a person of faith. Like you're very, you're a religious person. You have been since you were a kid. You you sang in the choir and and whatnot. Um, And all these astronauts, whether they're agnostic or atheistic or super religious, so many of them talk about having, whether you want to call it a spiritual experience or a, an awakening when they're in space and you mm-hmm. see Earth and you, you just recognize both how tiny and how large it all is. Um, is, there, is there an avenue, do you think, where you could maybe open people's eyes about the space program through your faith um, and maybe in a way that a lot of other astronauts don't or can't? I, actually, I'm trying, I'm trying to find that on the speaking circuit. You know, there's... Um the agency I have that kind of represents me um, has been looking into this because I think it'd be fun to share my experiences about faith because when astronauts go, many of them, many of them have faith as well. uh, But NASA doesn't really want you to, when you're an active astronaut, they don't really like you to go down that path. And so, and it's it's a government agency. Sure. So you have, you have to, Right. So they, they look, a lot of astronauts like to use the phrase, the orbital perspective. Mm-hmm. When I went to orbit, I got a different perspective on the Earth. And I agree, totally. I want people to go travel in space for a few days and go to a third world country for a few days. Because I think that would change their perspective on life in general on the planet. And I think our relationships could could get better worldwide. It's... It's hard to get perspective on things when you're stuck on social media right. or watching cable news exactly. all day long and exactly. you see the most extreme examples of everything. Exactly. I mean, you know what? I'm still, I'm blown away every time I have a conversation with somebody in actual real life about <laughs> just how rational. <laughs> For all the irrational people there are in the world, yeah. that when you sit down with somebody that you don't share the same view on, if it's just you two in a room, right. it's amazing how civil a conversation you can have. Well, that's because the bell curve, right, is... You know, we're always talking to most of the people in the middle of the bell curve, whereas social media and the news is always each far end of that bell curve, You're seeing right? the extreme. Oh, I yeah. And, they, and now with social media, that extreme voice is getting way louder than it ever was before. And, um, you know, and that's why I want to go back. And if we do that speaking thing, I want to speak about my faith. When I saw everything, I, I get that the earth is fragile. I get that we need to protect it. I'm going to do my small part. I'm going to recycle. I'm going to mulch my mow my grass when I mow, so it goes back into the yard. I'm going to do whatever I can. Um, I'm not going to drive an electric car necessarily because plugging it into the wall at night's getting power typically from a fossil fuel fired power plant. So, you know, there's pros and cons with all this stuff. But what I want people to know is that when I looked out into space, all I could think of was this ain't random. Mm-hmm. 
This is not random in any way, shape, or form. We're the only species that we know of on a spaceship called Earth that's traveling through the universe. And there may be other species out there traveling on their little spaceship planets in the universe, but it's so large, we just don't know. But the fact that we are the only species right now, and somebody like Stephen Hawking says, we got to get off the planet, we got to go to Mars. Well, do we really? Because maybe we will go extinct. I don't know. I'm not smart enough for that. But if I go to Mars, I got to either build Earth when I get there, or I got to take Earth with me. That's a huge proposition right there. Well, you know, and whether we do or don't go extinct, it's, it's just a matter of it's just a matter of timing. Like, okay, right. at some point, right. at some point, the the sun's gonna wait, explode or collapse. What's uh, it do it's first? Gonna... It explodes. Yeah, at some point. Uh, sorry, I'm, my daughter knows this. <laughs> <laughs> She's breaking down, crying now. <laughs> some uh, there was well, Louis C.K., who's probably not the best guy to quote anymore. He had uh, a bit about how. At one point, he was explaining what would happen uh, to, to various stars or, uh, at some point. He was thinking he was talking about science. And then he realized, as, as he looked at her face, that she was just learning that at some point, everybody <laughs> she knew <laughs> and everything she saw would someday be completely gone. Oh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's something to spring on a kid. Yeah. Um, so this new book, It's a Question of Space, this is geared mostly towards middle school and high school kids? It's targeted for young adults, um, but it's going to be great for adults as well. And it might be a lot of fun for teachers to have it on their desk at their school, especially if they're science and, and math type teachers. Um, every question I got was from social media on Quora.com, which means the questions came from around the world. Yeah. Um, the answers or the questions that I selected to answer are those where I had a dog in the hunt. I was not going to go out and research a bunch to answer a question. I would look for questions where I said, where I could say, oh, well, shoot, I lived in space, and that was a big deal for us, so let me write about what happened to me. And that way I can give humor, and, and they're not very technical answers. They're hopefully fun to read, and people get a little insight as to what it's like to live and work in space. So that's the target. You were telling us before we started recording about what it was like to learn how to write, and you had a writer <laughs> that helped you out along the way. I think, and I know that it's painful to learn how to write uh, for a mass audience, and, and you did a great job of it in Ordinary Spaceman. And I think what, the one thing that I really appreciated was you don't just take us from A to B. It's you do that thing that good books do, which is I felt what you were feeling when you went from A to B, mm-hmm. and I could, I could, you could tell me what you were experiencing and thinking as you went from A to B. And... A lot of there's there's a lot of otherwise mundane things I think that you breathed a lot of good life into, which oh. there as much as in, in the ordinary spaceman was a perfect description of it because you're you're working for the government and you're you know you're not making an exorbitant salary as you're as you're an astronaut yet you're doing these incredible things um, and I guess I suppose for your family sitting back here on Earth when you're gone for five months and. I, What's it like to be stuck on Earth but able to look up and see your dad fly by really fast every now and then? Um, well, thank you for your kind words, first of all. Um, I think my kids were 10. Cole was 10 and Sutton was 6 when I was in space the first time. Um, Sutton was pretty excited about everything associated with that because she was kind of famous, right? Because TV people wanted to talk or she'd be in you know the greatness of media. Um, Cole was a little less so. He kind of stayed to the back. 
Um, Cole's always a kid, kind of kid that didn't want to be known for what his dad did. He wanted to be known for what he did, which, and I totally get that. Um, so when they would go out, my wife, Susan would take him out and watch me pass over. Um, for them, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure it was a cool experience. And just as it was for me to fly over them. And when I knew I was flying over them and I could maybe call her on the phone and stuff, that was pretty surreal, right? That from 250 miles up, I was communicating or at least thinking of that point on earth where that I was flying over. I told you I was only going to keep you for a half hour. It's like 36 minutes now, so I'm going to let you go. It's a question of space and ordinary astronauts' answers to sometimes extraordinary questions. Uh, Clayton signed a copy for my daughter. I'm, I promised you that wasn't my intent uh, to come over and get a free <laughs> gift for my daughter. She was excited to see you. But there are some really, uh, you've gotten, for the, for the intellectual meathead, chapter five is uh, space physiology and psychology. And uh, Clayton's, Clayton's a really interesting dude. Check it out. Ordinary Space. Man uh -huh. was your book for adults. You have a, a book for young kids. Children's called A is for Astronaut. A is for Astronaut. And now this one, which you could pre-order on Amazon or anywhere else you get, get books, it's a question of space. Just go ahead and Google Clayton Anderson. A whole bunch of great stuff. Thank you, Clayton. My pleasure, Seth. It's an honor to be here, and let's do it again. Sometime. Yeah, we'll see you before a Texans game All right. sometime soon. Oh, yeah. I wanna, hey, that's Seth Payne. Hey. <laughs> Thanks, man. You bet. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.